You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to tonight's program at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, as Crystal mentioned, I'm Meg Duwadi. I'm one of your Inform Advisory Board members, and we're very pleased to welcome back best-selling author Bill Burnett. Bill is a designer, he's a Stanford professor, and he's a co-author of Designing Your Work Life, How to Thrive and Change and Find Happiness at Work. And spoiler alert, it's in the nonfiction section. <laughs> so Bill, thanks for joining us tonight. You're welcome. So uh, let's, let's kick things off. To start, it might be helpful for the audience to define design thinking. So what does that mean? How did you come to be a designer? And how does designing and design thinking relate to your work at Stanford? Wow. That's actually three questions. <laughs> um, let, me, let me start with, you know, I was a confused young kid in, in high school, thought I liked physics. I grew up in Boston, ended up at Stanford. Turns out I sucked at physics. Um, but there was this really cool design program where we took where engineering and art and anthropology and psychology and put it all together. And that was originally what we called human-centered design. About 2006, David Kelly, our senior professor, created this thing called the D School, the design school. It's not actually a school. He named it that just because the B School calls it a B-school, and, and so we thought that'd be fun. And we like to take, poke fun at the B-school. Um, and, and, so, and then we started, we started doing this human-centered design thing we call design thinking, because it really is a way of solving problems, not just for designers, but in general, solving complicated problems that involve humans, and where you, the solutions aren't really clear when you start, and you don't really know where you're going. So you have to just build a lot of stuff to figure out what's, what's this new-to-the-world new future that you're trying to do. So I run the undergraduate and graduate program in design. Uh, a phenomenal woman, Sarah Stein-Greenberg, runs the D School, where we teach everybody design thinking. But in my program, you can get a degree to learn how to do this design thinking, to do design for products, for services, for experiences. Um, been to Disneyland? Best experience design on the planet. Even standing in line, everything is designed. It's actually designed so that when you leave the park, you have no money left in your wallet. <laughs> but you don't care because it's the happiest place on earth. So, so, that's, so design thinking is for those kinds of problems. Um, you know, we do engineering at, 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 in my group too, and then engineering is great. If you, have a, if you have a lot of data and you want to build a bridge, engineering is awesome. Um, if you went to business school and you learned business thinking, then you're optimizing business decisions. You were investment. You were doing uh, in the investment finance world until a little while ago. We find out he's redesigning his his work life uh, in in the green room. Um, so in business, you're optimizing decisions based on some figure of merit, you know, profitability or forecasts or something. And in design, we we're trying to optimize this new to the world future. And it seemed pretty obvious to Dave and I, uh, and again, Dave apologizes for not being here, it's a, a family emergency. Um, when we're thinking about, well, what do we want to do next in our, in our lives? 
originally we were we were talking to our senior students, and they were like, "I don't, we don't know what, we don't know how to launch, we don't know how to get jobs." They're smart, you know, but they're not. They're not very savvy, Stanford students. <laughs> um, they all live on campus. They call it a bubble. Um, they don't really know how, what the world is like. And, and, and moreover, people are sort of, well, you know, will jobs be meaningful? Will I, will I learn something? Will I have an impact? And um, it seems like designing that is a pretty interesting problem. So we just started applying design principles of prototyping and empathy and, and uh, being mindful of the process, but being, having a bias to action. We started applying that to people's lives, and it turns out to be pretty effective. Um, the first book, uh, Designing Your Life, came out in 2016 and, and did okay, did pretty well. And the, and the editors at, at Knopf, who's amazing, Vicki Wilson, said, okay, I want another book. And we said, well, we got a bunch of different ideas. And one was on the future of work, which we ended up doing. One was on retirement. How many people are thinking about their encore career? Right? Yeah. So, like, if you know, if you're in your 50s and 60s and, you know, the first career was okay and now you're thinking of, what, you know, I'm not going to just retire. I mean, uh, you know, we may be in, in a time when people live to be a healthy 80, 90, 100 years old. You're not just going to golf for 30 years, right? You want to do something with your life. So, a book on retirement, a book on work. Um, I wanted to do Designing Your Life Together, a book on relationships. Um, but our very pithy New York editor said, you boys don't know anything about relationships. <laughs> Stick to what you know. So we ended up writing the book on work. <clears throat> very, very helpful. Uh, so now let's take things local. The workplace seems to be changing faster than ever before, and yeah. particularly in the Bay Area. Do you think design thinking has helped to spark any new trends? Oh, absolutely. You know, um, uh, when I'm just doing the design thinking thing for companies, you know, I do, I do exec ed programs for companies. Um, people are realizing that if they don't delight their customers, if they don't design amazing experiences, they're just not going to be competitive. You know, I was at Apple for, for seven years, and Apple kind of sets the bar, I think, for, for design of products and experiences and, and services. Um, and now everybody's expecting, well, it's, it's got to be that good or better. So I think... I think there's a design revolution going on across, across you know, Silicon Valley. Uh, venture capitalists now employ designers. Um, uh, a wonderful woman, Irene Au, is she here? I don't think so. Um, is, a, is like the head des- uh, designer at uh, Sequoia and you know, a- advising all of the venture capital you know, funded companies on how to design incredible experiences. So I think design is really... Um, kind of changed from being, oh, well, we'll do a little, we'll come up with our idea, and then we'll kind of clean it up at the end. We'll make it look nice. To really thinking about, well, what's the experience I have on my phone or on, on my screen or when I walk into a store or almost every place? You know, everything in this room is designed. The architecture was done by architects. The chairs and everything else were done by designers. Everything in our human experience nowadays is designed, and most of it, from, for a long time now, been pretty poorly done. Um, and so I think people are expecting much better design. And I think, you know, Stanford and lots of other places are kind of trying to lead the charge to, send, I mean, send out lots and lots of, you know, smart designers to help make a, a better world. Sure. Uh, 
let's pivot a little bit to the topic of redesigning your job. And my gut feel is that there are folks in the audience for whom this might be particularly relevant. Uh, You say in your book that there are four strategies for helping people feel unstuck in their jobs. Can you go over those strategies? Sure. Um, And, and, um, you know, if, if the Gallup poll on worker engagement is correct, 68% of you, are disengaged or deeply disengaged in your work. Um, 85% of global workers think their jobs are boring. And I just think that's the, you know, that was the premise of the book. It's like, this is horrible. People are really stuck. And, and, they, don't, and, and, they, and they don't know what to do, you know, because they, 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 they think they have no agency. Right? They think they can't do anything. It's my boss. It's my company. It's something. Some, it's always some other thing. And we, and we believe you have more room to, to maneuver than you think. So one of the premises in the book is don't resign. Resign and quitting a job is actually pretty traumatic. Um, redesign. You can redesign in place. And, there, and there's sort of four strategies in, in order of you know easier to, to more a, a more serious redesign. Um, part of it, one strategy is just um, you know reframe. Um, how many you know how many people have been in a job that they liked, and then something changed. You know, company got bought, got a new boss, got had a reorganization or something, and all of a sudden, the thing you like, you don't like anymore. Well, what happened? The, the framework you're working in changed, and now you either need to figure out a new reason to come to work, or you're going to be stuck and, you know, kind of victimized by the change. And so, you know, part, part of what designers do is figure out a better question, and the reframe is always about finding a new why. I used to come to work for this. But that's not the only reason your organization has lots of different things it's doing. Is there a new why? Can I find another why and, and then re-engage and, and re-enlist? So one is, is it's not, it's not, it's not, it's, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's just, you know, make lemon out of lemonades. Lemons are sour and bitter and they suck. And there's no, if there's no sugar, <laughs> you can't make lemonade. But you can reframe. There's an example of a guy in the book whose company was happy. He was working in an aerospace, aerospace company doing quality assurance. And the company got bought by a private equity firm. And, you know, they always say, oh, nothing's going to change. And then, of course, everything changed. And the whole culture went to hell. And all the senior guys got a buyout. But he was stuck. Um, but uh, he had a very ill child, uh, a, a kid who needed lots and lots of medical attention had an autoimmune disease, and so he needed the insurance, and this was before Obamacare, so he couldn't leave. There's no, there's no chance. I mean, he has to... Yes. Now you have to figure out a new why. Okay, everything changed, but how do I do this? Okay, well, if I'm coming to work for my son, that can be a noble cause, and I don't want to be a victim, so how do I find a way to figure out in this organization what's new that I could learn? So he reframed um, you can remodel. A basic remodel is, you know, there's t- 10 things in my job. I do seven of them really well. The other three I'm not very good at. Can I find a way to remodel, literally remodel the job and reconstruct it so that um, I can add more value? And, of course, you always put this in the terms that the organization cares about. You say, boss, I'd like to add more value. I'm really good at these seven things. I'm not very good at these other three things. I think, I think Cynthia would be awesome to do those other things. Let's have her, you know, let, let's see if we could re, redesign, remodel this job. 
Um, a reinvent is a little bit trickier because you got to kind of, that's where you, you sort of go from, now a relocate, you know, a relocate is I'm going to go from, my, I'm going to go from finance to marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, but, and, and maybe some of my skills are transferable, maybe they're not, but I can find a place in the organization that I can relocate to. And then a, and then a reinvent is I, I probably got to go back to school. But, but the trick here is, look, um, if you're working some, if working in any reasonable sized company and you've had, you know, some success, you've got a massive social network and social capital there. The way you actually find jobs in the world isn't by going online or any of that stuff. None of that works. The online hit rate is two to five percent. You can send how many people have sent out hundreds of resumes and never gotten an answer back from the online monster. It's a giant waste of time, and it makes you feel bad, right? Because I sent 100 resumes, and I got nothing back. I must really suck. No, you don't suck at all. It's the system that sucks. The way people find jobs is they find them through informal networks. Where's your most powerful informal network? At the company you work in. So the, the opportunity to either you know, reimagine the job or relocate or reinvent it or, or, or retrain to get another job inside the same organization where you have all this social capital is so much more effective than just, you know, take this job and shove it, and walking out the door, you know, pissed off, and then, and then starting the job search. Um, it's not fair, but you are six times more likely to be called for an interview if you have a job than if you don't. The day, the, the day after you, you quit and the day before when you still had the job, you're the exact same human being, but there's a bias in the world that says... Hmm, Bill doesn't have a job. There must be something wrong with him. I think I'll look at those other candidates first. And so you really want to be strategic if you decide you can't you know, reinvent, relocate, you know, redesign, or, or, um, or, or retrain yourself. If it does come time to quit, you've got to be very strategic about how you do it. Sure. And Bill, you also talk about three types of overwhelm as a noun <laughs> in the workplace. And all this time, I only thought there was one. Uh, so what are they? How do we deal with them? How many people f- sometimes find their jobs to be pretty overwhelming? Um, yeah, it's, you know, and... and, and At this, least 80% of the room is lying. There are two hands this, up. Yeah, yeah. This, this is, and this is a, not just a Silicon Valley thing, but boy, it's kind of become this weird Silicon Valley thing to kind of brag about how hard you work. Or like, I haven't been working so many hours. It's like, it's like that's not actually healthy. Um, we should all stop that. Um, and the, uh, our publisher is Knopf. It's, a, it's the, one of the largest New York publishers. And um, the, the, the president of Knopf actually said when we submitted the proposal, you're going to write a chapter about overwhelm, aren't you? And since he was in charge of the, the, the advance, we said, sure. That's a great <laughs> idea, Marcus. Um, but we actually, when we dug into it, because we, you know, we, we, we use empathy as our, our methodology to understand you know, the problem, um, people are overwhelmed, and, they're, and, they're, and it's, it's kind of crazy, and sometimes it's, it's too much. One quick warning. There's a, we actually put the Mayo Clinic test for job burnout in the book hmm. because there's a big difference between burnout, which is a, a, is a truly a, you know, it's a, it's a medical syndrome. It's dangerous to your health. It's dangerous to your mental health and well-being, but it's also that kind of stress is very dangerous for your body. So if you're burned out, that's a different story. You've got to go get some help, and, you, and that's not something that we're capable of, of making advice or giving advice on. 
when you stay in our lane. We're just the design guys. But um, assuming you're not literally, you know, medically burned out, there's, there's Hydra, Happy, and um, Hyper, Overwhelm. Hydra is the, is the nine-headed beast. You know, your job was fine, and then Debbie quit, and then they give you all the Debbie stuff to do, and then John quit, and they give you all the John stuff to do, and now you're doing three jobs, and it's just crazy. There's too many things to do. Or you're reporting to too many different people. Or you have to collect information from five different groups, and they're always late, and you're always struggling to, you know, to just get the stuff done. So that's the nine-headed beast, and the, and the, way, the way you solve that is you just start cutting off heads. You have, you, have to, you have to look at the list, and you've got to try to figure out what you can delegate or, or eliminate or find uh, resources to help you with. And, and the best way to do that is just make the list, make it as long as it actually is, and then go back and renegotiate you know, with, with the folks you work with. Um, the happy overwhelm is kind of what I am experiencing right now. I'm running this undergraduate program, the graduate program, then we have these two books, and, and all this, and then the books, are in, and the lab uh, is going great at Stanford, the Desi- Life Design Lab, and we've taught 120 universities to teach this stuff, so all the Ivies are teaching it, and a lot of community colleges are teaching it, which is where we really want to be, because that's where the impact is. Um, there's 2.5 million students in the California community college system, and the state college system is like 600,000. Just in California alone, if you added up all the Ivies and, and the Stanfords, it's a couple hundred thousand kids. Hmm. I want to I impact the other folks that, are, that really need it. Um, so I've got, I mean, I got too many things to do. And they're all wonderful, and I volunteered for all of them. <laughs> so I'm in the happy overwhelm, nine times out of ten. Um, my admin says, you're, when, I, when I book things on your calendar, it makes me nauseous. <laughs> <laughs> So many, there, there, there are times when I'm supposed to be in three meetings at the same time. So that is, that's fine. You chose into it. So, and they're all good things. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, I'm starting to delegate out to people who are way more talented than I am to do the really interesting things that are fun to do. So it's not hard to delegate them. And then the, um, the hyper-overwhelm is the startup syndrome. How many people have done a startup? Yeah. So again, you, chose, you choose it. But it, and, and you have just recently chosen to start a startup. Circa nine days, I'll report back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's, that's, you know, again, that's a situation where um, you, the first step in our process is accept. You accept, okay, I'm going to do this. It's going to be overwhelming. What I'm going to do is um, negotiate with my friends and family, you know, to make sure that I, I manage at least a certain amount of time for the things that have to be done. And everything else, you just don't do it. Dave had a friend who called up all his friends and said, I'm doing a startup, and I made a short list of people that I'm going to actually pay attention to while I'm doing this, and none of you made the list. <laughs> so I'll call you in three years, and we'll see how it goes. You, you, you know, you, you, get, when, you, when you choose to do a startup, you know you're heading into this hyper-overwhelm. Uh, it's, 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 you know, flying the plane while you're trying to build it. It's all these other analogies. So um, that one you just, you just have to manage by choosing into the thing you decide to do. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about employee-employer relationships. So it seems like it was every year. Now almost every month a new survey comes out saying how much employees <laughs> hate their employers. Uh, <laughs> yeah. How can someone navigate unhappiness in the workplace, specifically regarding the supervisors, in a successful way? 
Yeah, <laughs> here's my favorite statistic. Um, I think it might have been a Gallup again. Um, 25% of American workers would give up their next raise if you would fire their boss. (laughs) 25% of American workers would pay you to fire their boss. Now, what's interesting is that many bosses answered that same survey the same way, right? So people are just people and bosses and, you know, and and these these hierarchical structures and stuff. Um, but, But, you know... Uh, it's also true, like you mentioned at the very beginning, work is changing fast, and our, our jobs are changing quickly. Um, some of that's scary, some of that's interesting, right? Well, don't, don't you hope you're doing something 10 years from now that you can't even imagine doing, and it's even cooler than what you're doing now? I mean, you, I've been teaching at Stanford for a while. 20 years ago, if one of my students had said, hey, I think I want to go get a job in AI or machine learning, I would go, that doesn't exist. <laughs> that, that field does not exist yet. You can't do it. And now everybody wants to do it. So, you know, given that jobs are changing faster and that people are spending three to five years in a job, not 20 years in a job, we have to be responsible for our own development. I think modern talent management people that I've been talking to and Dave and I have been talking to are saying, yeah, you know, we want to empower people to do stuff, but we're not here to to design their, you know, their, their job progression. It's not like the old days. We'll give you resources, but you've got to tell us what you want to learn. You've got to tell us how you want to contribute. And so there's a, there's a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of uh, psych- psychological research. Our stuff, uh, by the way, I, I, teach at, I teach at Stanford. It's a research school. I'm not allowed to just make stuff up. <laughs> and I'm in the engineering school, not economics, so I really can't just make stuff up. <laughs> um, so we try to be research-based. And uh, there's a whole, uh, Edward Dietschy and Richard Ryan and some other psychologists have been uh, studying this thing called social determination theory, or social determinate theory, which is about how we are intrinsically motivated creatures. We're motivated around autonomy, relatedness, and connectedness. We want to, competency, we want to get better at stuff because we just like to get better at stuff. We want to want to do stuff with other people and we want to be autonomous. We want to have, you know, autonomy to decide how we work. You don't, you don't need your boss to give you those things. You, you have those things. In fact, this, the interesting, the, the fundamental study that this started this whole way of thinking is they would uh, bring two groups of people in and give them a puzzle to solve because people like to solve puzzles. And one group, they'd just say, we're going to time you to see how well you do. And the other group would say, we're going to pay you 100 bucks. The group that paid $100 always underperforms the group that just does it for fun. If you try to pay people for an intrinsically motivated, you know, uh, intrinsic motivation, it lowers their, their performance. And so you have the ability to get more competent, you know, work across, across teams and work with people that you enjoy and, you know, and to create some autonomy in your own role. And I think if you just, if you, if you go back to your boss and your boss goes back to his boss and his boss and his boss or her boss, and and um, and say this is how I want to. This is how I want to show up in this organization. These are the things I think I can contribute. It's kind of hard to say no. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. So we know in the workplace we can control our attitude, we can control our productivity and a bunch of other factors. 
But what do we do about the things that we can't control, like a team that's unsupportive, like office politics? How can design thinking help us navigate some of those tricky situations? Um, well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not magical thinking, you know, and uh, just like the warning, if, you know, if, if you believe you're in a, in a really a, a difficult burnout situation, get that assessed, get help. If you're in a toxic workplace, if there's rampant you know, sexism or, or racism or ageism or whatever, or you know, you're working for people that are, um, uh, who you don't think are ethical or are not motivated you know, uh, to be um, the kind of people you want to work with, just life, you deserve better. Get the hell out. You know, don't, don't put yourself in a situation where people are being abusive. Um, you know, you, you, you may have to negotiate how you leave and make sure that, you know, you still have safety and security and, and, and a paycheck and all that stuff. But don't, don't stay in a place that's, that's just evil. Um, the, the rest, you know, you, we, we make a distinction. There's a couple of kind of problems you can't solve. One we call a gravity problem. You can't solve gravity. The, the, Dave is a bicyclist, and, he keeps, and he, keep, he keeps complaining that gravity gets harder and harder the older he gets to get up hills. And I go, Dave, it's just gravity. It's, it's not a problem. It's a circumstance. Um, and some things are just gravity problems. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things we, we, we've done in the research, you know, companies are a lot flatter than they used to be. And, and, and up is no longer, you know, necessarily what, possible. You know, if, if the company is flatter and there's a whole bunch of people waiting to be directors... It may be that you're never going to be a director in this organization because there's too many people in line and the company doesn't work that way anymore. So some stuff you just have to accept and then work around. Um, and then the anchor problem situation is where you say, well, the only, thing I, the only way I can be happy is to get something that I want that I can't have. The anchor is, you know, I, I have to be a director. Or I have to have, you know, this solution to my problem. And, and that one is more straightforward. You just get rid of the bad solution reframe and brainstorm up a whole bunch of other ways that you can be happy. Um, and, and going up isn't necessarily all it's stacked up to be. And is it a zero-sum game between satisfaction, money, and purpose in a job? <clears throat> it's never a zero-sum game. It's, I, you know, that's, you, be careful. Um, it's the, like the work-life balance thing is a big debunking in the first book. It's like, well, and this one is the money versus meaning. I can work for money or meaning. I can go, you know, I get students who say, I can, I got this cool job, Teach for America. I can go to Tennessee and help, you know, kids in rural Tennessee learn to love Shakespeare. Or I got this other offer from McKinsey, and, and, and they're going to pay me a lot of money. What should I do, Bill? And I don't, I don't actually, I'm an advisor, but I don't actually give advice. I just ask the students to solve their own problem. And I, I'll say something like, I can't help but notice when you were talking about the TFA job, you were like, I could do this. I'm so excited. And when you were talking about the McKinsey job, you were kind of like this. <laughs> Did you notice that too? Like, yeah. I said, your body doesn't want to work for McKinsey, does it? I said, no, they don't. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you one, I'll tell you one, uh, that one observation. You're 22 and you'll never be more optimistic or idealistic now than you know than you will ever be now than you would later so listen to your body and do what you want to do and so i just i just give permission and then they go work for tfa and then i get a call from their parents <laughs> that have ruined their lives um 
I'm sorry, what was the question? I, I, forgot, I forgot the question. Is, is it a zero-sum game? It's not a zero-sum game. No, it's not a zero-sum game. Because, because you got to, you know, here's, here's, the, here's the reframe on the money-meaning thing. Um, uh, what's the, it's a, the Einstein quote, not everything that can be measured counts, so not everything that counts can be measured. So be careful how you measure what your success is. And whenever you make it a zero uh, uh, Money versus meaning, uh, work versus life. It's a, your brain will automatically make that a binary decision, A or B, and you can't win because if you have more of this, you have none of that. You know, so, it's, so the zero-sum game neurologically is, is you can't defeat it. But that's actually not the way it works. The way, the way we reframed this one was, um, okay, in the market economy, we get paid in money. Awesome. That's how, that's how you measure success in the market economy. You get paid in money. But if you work for a nonprofit or you work in the impact space, it's not about money. It's about impact. Like how many kids are in my after-school program and they're not joining gangs because they're playing, playing ball. And then when we do this other exercise called the Odyssey Plans, everybody wants more creativity in their life. So we went out and talked to the artists and the creatives and the dancers and the others and we said, what do you, how do you measure your success? And they go, expression. If I get a chance to do my play or I get a chance to you know, speak my poem or my truth to the world... That's what pays me. That's, that's what I get paid in. I get paid in ex- expression units or impact units or dollar units. So when you look at that, those three, th- we call it the maker mix because everybody's a maker nowadays, right? So, and it's like three sliders on a mixer board. You don't, you don't mix a song with everybody, you know, everything at 100%. The bass, the treble, the, the voice, mm-hmm. you know, the, the drums. You, you build a mix that makes sense. And so sometimes we're working more for money than expression. Sometimes we're working more for impact than, than money. I had a, my own consulting firm and about 40 people working for me here and then a big office in Hong Kong, um, which is still there, um, uh, not doing so well. And, um, and when David Kelly called me, he said, hey, you want to do this executive director job? I said, that sounds great. Uh, by the way, how much does it pay? <laughs> it paid about half of what I was making as a consultant. Um, but I have an amazing wife who also works, so we, she told me I should go do this job. And, um, and my idea was, okay, I'm going to dial the money down, but I'm going to dial the impact way up. I was going to 10 years, 1,000 students. I put 1,000 kids in the world who are passionate about changing the big problems, you know, climate change, energy, healthcare, all that stuff. Um, this is year 13. I've got about 1,500 of them in the world. So um, it's all about impact. And is that matrix for you still where you thought it, where you initially started out with 13 years ago? Yeah, although I'm, uh, as I'm getting you know, a little farther down my life and looking at my encore, I really want to dial up the expression. Doing design was a compromise um, in a way because I was an artist uh, when I was younger, and, and I came to Stanford wanting to study art and physics. <laughs> and then the, I found this other thing that was just kind of like that, uh, that you could actually make a living at. Um, but it, in the, at the end of the day, you know, I think you'd, I'd really rather just dial up the expression. Sure. So we talked a little bit about why people shouldn't be quitting their jobs, why there's oftentimes opportunity within the workplace where they're at right now, uh, and also when it's the right time to quit. And what are some tools and things to be considering about how to do that in a 
in a good way, right? What are, what are good ways to quit? What are bad ways to quit? Yeah, and I just found, I fell into one of these YouTube rabbit holes because um, we, <laughs> we have a chapter on quitting well. And people started sending me little YouTube clips. And I didn't realize this. There's thousands of YouTube clips of people quitting their jobs. <laughs> have you seen these? Like there's this guy who's working at Starbucks and he walks in with his guitar and he sets up a guitar and an amp and he starts singing this song about how, how he's, he's going to quit his job and everybody sucks. There's all, these, there's all these quitting videos, which I think is really funny. Don't quit that way. <laughs> that, that's, that's a bad way to quit. Um, uh, you know, I, I think as well, first, see if you can redesign it, reframe it, redesign it somehow. If that doesn't work, then make sure you have a landing place before you leave because there's that six times more likely to get the interview. So, you know, do a good job on the job. But um, the estimate is 40% of the people in the workforce are looking for another job while they're employed. So that goes along with the 68% of the people don't like their jobs. Um, half of you are looking for another job. Um, but that's, I mean, do a good job while you're there. They're paying you. Um, but find the other job. And then we, we have a four-step process for quitting well. One, leave the campsite better than you found it. You know, someone else is going to take this job. Don't leave it a mess. Clean up the stuff that needs to get done so the new person can, you know, can, can start well. Two, um, write a job description, because the one that you actually got has got nothing to do with what you really do. We all know that. <laughs> write the job description for the person who's coming in so they know what, you know, all the different pieces, parts and pieces that need to be, you know, put together are. Three, take everybody you like out for a coffee. Make sure you keep your network intact. The number one, uh, the times I've quit jobs, the number one thing that happens three months after you quit a job so all the people you liked at the company send you their resume and say, get me out of here. Right? <laughs> so keep, you know, work the network and, and, and make sure that the people, you know, know that, that you respect and, and you like, that, that they know you do and don't just leave. And then the third one, you know, is to leave on a high note, you know, send a nice note out and, and uh, don't talk about how cool the new job is. Nobody wants to hear that. Um, but, you know, Praise the people that, that, you know, praise your team. Make sure the people that, um, that, that you're leaving, you know, uh, you live on a high note. You live, you live in a positive way. Don't just do the two-week, you know, here's my two-weeks notice. Kind of slink around the office for a while and then, and then leave. I mean, do it well because, because particularly here in Silicon Valley, I mean, you know, everybody that I, that I started out working with, is, I'm still in contact with. I mean, I've been working in the Valley, you know, for 30 years. And people move companies and new companies form and new opportunities are created all the time. Every job I've ever had, and I've always really liked my jobs, I've gotten from someone calling me up and saying, hey, we're doing this thing. So keep, you know, cl- clean, up, clean up the mess. Um, you know, uh, Write the job description so the new person can succeed. They'll love you, by the way, for that. They'll just think you're the best person ever. Keep your network, you know, build your, you know, reconnect your network to make sure when you leave, people know you like them. And then, you know, leave on a high note. Send a nice, nice letter out to everybody. And for the 40% of the audience that is looking for a new job right now, any design thinking tips for them? Uh, You've, you know... Eight out of ten jobs are never listed. 
Depends a little bit on your field, but eight out of 10 jobs are never listed. And right now, the valley, particularly around here, is, is booming. I think they're, they're, we're, we're short like 20 or 30,000 uh, technical people in the valley. And, and not, just, not just coders, but people who can do you know, project management and anything you know, to, get, to get projects done. And so um, the, good, the good jobs will, will, will be found... Paradoxically, we say, if you want to find a job, don't look for the job, look for the story. Call people up, look them up on LinkedIn. Hey, I just looked you up on LinkedIn. It said you were at UBS, but now I hear you're at this new startup. Can we have coffee? I'd love to hear about it. I'm not looking for a job. I'm just looking for his story. He's probably eager to tell me his story because he's all excited about his new thing. But lots of people are. I mean, the basic approach is, hey, I looked you up on LinkedIn or a friend told me about you. We have something in common. I think you're awesome. I bet you think you're awesome. Can I buy you coffee and you'll tell me how <laughs> awesome you are? <laughs> Trust me, if you, if you do that eight to ten times, what happens is you become visible in this informal network of people who are handing jobs around, looking for people to fill spots. You become visible. And you start talking like an insider in that domain of things that you're looking, you're, you're deeply curious about. So curiosity, storytelling. And then stuff starts to happen. But the trick is you can't be pretending t- to want my story and then show up with a resume or something like that. You really have to just be curious. Because you, once you're in the network of people who are exchanging these informal jobs and once they're aware of you, um, that's where things happen. I, I, there's, there's, a, I had a story, there's a story uh, in the book. I had a very, very, very shy student. She was incredibly introverted, and she said, I can't, I can't call anybody and have coffee with them. No one's going to talk to me. I'm just a student. And I said, well, you have to because it's an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to help you get started, here's a list of things. It's the Stanford Alumni mentoring network and these are people who've kind of put their you know emails up and they're willing to talk to you so so you know here's the here's the we here's the line you put in the subject letter in subject <laughs> line here's how you do it she was so nervous that she wouldn't get the assignment done um, that she sent out 12 inquiries and got 12 yeses i'd love to have <laughs> coffee with you debbie and she's like what do i do now i said well you started it you're going to have 12 coffees <laughs> And I think it was the eighth or ninth coffee, she met a woman who just thought she was an amazing young woman and said, I think you would be fantastic in an opportunity that I'm going to create because I've just met you. Would you like to work here? And she did. So it works. (laughs) So thinking a little bit more about the gig economy, which, which employs yeah. uh, many people, uh, particularly in the Bay Area, how can the gig worker succeed using design thinking? Are these same principles applicable to these folks? Yeah, it's even more so, because if you're a gig worker, you're basically an entrepreneur. You're designing, you are designing your job every day. Um, and one of the things in the books, I insist we actually teach a real design tool, just tools that designers use. And in this case, Last book, it was mind mapping, and this one, it's, um, it's called a journey map or a, a customer journey. Um, and you know, designers use this all the time for everything from you know, how do you get a good MRI scan to um, you know, what's it like to order food at Chipotle. 
Um, so if, if you want to, if, if you want to, if if you want to beat the gig economy at its own game, you've got to be, you, you've got to, you've got to provide an exceptional. People who provide exceptional offerings get exceptional customers. So I don't care if you're a, I've got a, a thing about a Lyft driver who's got you know five playlists and he kind of psychs out the person who gets in the car, figures out what the playlist is, and then he has these special candies because he's from Mumbai. He's got these special candies from his hometown, and he has these amazing you know, conversations with people about music and and his and his his cultural heritage, and he's gotten like five job offers, you know, just in the car. Huh. Right? Oh, or, or people who, uh, the, the example we use for how do you design a customer journey is a, uh, a lot of people I, I meet who do want to quit their jobs want to do something uh, where they are, it's in the gig economy, but they're like, they want to be a coach, you know, like a, a, a personal coach, or, or they want to be a trainer, or they want to do something like that. And so it's a woman in the book who's a trainer, but, you know, trainers are trainers, and it, it's not that easy to make a living at it. She kind of reframes herself as a you know a digital fitness fitness expert, and has this whole process of how you find out about her, and then how you have the first the first conversation, how she does the first the first training for free. She gives you, you know, like a Fitbit and a bunch of other stuff. She takes all these pictures. She's got you know a, a very detailed analysis of your. Of, you know, of your body and posture. She knows everybody goes through what they call the valley of despair in training where you're just not making any progress. So she's got a plan for that. She's got a plan for success and a plan for when you finally don't need her anymore, why you're going to give her the best review ever <laughs> you know, on Yelp. So she's designed the whole journey of a person who's trying to get fit from I don't even know who you are to you're my best friend. <laughs> right? And, and now, I, and now, look at me. I look great. Right? So I think I think anybody you know working for themselves is essentially an entrepreneur. So you need a little bit of a business plan. We've got a little tool for that, and you need to really understand how do you make an amazing experience for the customers you're serving. And that's that's actually that's the meat and potatoes of design thinking anyway. So that's the easy part. Yeah. Does does it and it being design thinking only work in? cultures like ours that are individualistic? Can it be applicable elsewhere? That's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, our, our experience around the, around the world with just design, designing products and services, is yes, and you have to be culturally specific. What works, you know, what, what works, for instance, what works for a website in the U.S. will not work for a website in Japan. It's not the way people search. They want a completely different kind of experience. It's, it's, uh, it, it's real. Have you ever, ever been to China and seen like Chinese websites? They're just full of stuff. They're, like every, every page is full of hundreds of ads and hundreds of things to click on. Um, you know, and, and like our Google page has got one box and like white. <laughs> it's like, so everybody has different... Um, expectations for the experience they want to have, and you really want to understand the culture you're in. And you know, there's been hundreds of examples of designs, you know, that were successful in the U.S. and failed. You know, uh, the classic, you know, Nova is means doesn't go in in Mexico, so you can't call a car the Nova in Mexico because everybody thinks the car doesn't go. Um, there's branding stuff like that. There's there's communication stuff. Obviously, it has to be culturally specific. But um, 
if you use if you use the design process, which starts with empathy, mm-hmm. like then you would go out into the culture you're designing for, whatever that culture is, um, and try to really understand it. And you know, it's no different than saying, well, I'm, in one case I'm designing for children, in another case I'm designing for you know people who are uh, experiencing cancer and cancer therapy. Um, those are really different cultures with really different sensitivities and needs. So you would want to be good at that and understanding that because that would be the foundation of how you even approach prototyping, you know, any, any solution. Sure. So we're shortly going to move into audience Q&A. So if you do have a question, and when we started out, Crystal uh, set some key tenants for what these questions <laughs> should look like. So let's say 60 seconds or less ends in a question mark. Uh, please start queuing up in the back and we'll move yeah. to those uh, in a few minutes. And uh, as and we wait... For- the, thank, thanks everybody for coming. And now the lights are on. I can see there's a lot of people in the room. Yeah. Thank you for coming out. I wasn't sure anyone was going to be here at all because of, you know, <laughs> coronaviruses and crazy stuff, yeah. So as we wait for the questions to, to queue up, uh, I've got two more for you, Bill. One is... What's the biggest takeaway that you and Dave would like folks to uh, really take away about their work lives from your book? Um, You know, the stats are jobs are three to five years. You're going to have 15 to 25 of them. You may change careers two or three times. So one way of thinking about that is, isn't that exciting? (laughs) <laughs> now look at all the opportunity that I have and that, that I, what we hope is that you believe after you read the book and you, and you, and you start, start, really start thinking like a designer, like, hey, I could change that. I could change the outcome here. I, I can't control everything, but there's some things I can change. And, and to what David Kelly, our, our senior professor, calls creative confidence, that you believe that, hey, I'm the agent in this. It, it, it's not my boss that's making me miserable. It's not the company that's making me miserable. I can... I can, I can make that situation better, or I can change the situation, or I can find a new situation. I'm the agent in this, in this game. And, um, and you all deserve good jobs. Nobody should be disengaged at work and, and bummed out. Um, uh, you know, I've, I've run my own company. I have big groups at Apple. I've done th- three startups. Um, there's no such thing as a bad employee. There's just bad fits. You're just in the wrong place. Somewhere in the universe of, of what you know how to do, there's, another, there's a place that would, would think you were awesome. That's what we want you to end up feeling like. Sure. And what other aspects of our lives should we be thinking about designing? Love, parenthood, death, what else? No. <laughs> I did propose designing your afterlife. Um, as a potential title. I'm an existential atheist, and Dave is a born-again Christian, so we have some different opinions on that. Um, yeah, you know, uh, good luck. <laughs> My wife and I, who's sitting in the front, have, have three children. Uh, they're all uh, grown-ups now. Good luck trying to design, you know, anything other than just staying sane while you have children. But that's, that's, don't worry about it. The kids will design your, your life and it'll be amazing. <laughs> um, uh, love, yeah, that'd be great. I don't have any, anything to say about that um, other than it's great when you, when you find it. Um, 
you know, design's good for the stuff that um, when you want something new to the world, you want to you want to come up with an iPhone or a new way to do, you know, um, standing in line at a Disney ride. It's great for that kind of stuff. So think about think about the things in your life that you'd like to just make a little bit better. Our, I, I, you know, our secret method is set the bar low, <laughs> make it a little bit better, do it again, do it again, and do it again. The way you change the way you change things is in small increments. The way you fail is to try to do too much too fast. Thank you, Dave. Let's move into our audience Q&A. This is our first audience question. Okay. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much. Um, it's just been great to listen to you and a huge load of validating moments. Um, I work at a B school, not yours, but the one on the other side of the bay at Cal, and we make fun of it too, so it's not just <laughs> yours. Um, but I work in career management with MBA students yes. who are on a time crunch. They've made a significant financial investment. They've taken a huge risk. They want meaningful and rewarding work, and that's, yes. what, that's what we give them. But they want it now. So yes. in your work with graduate students, which of the tools in your book have you found kind of calms the nerves or just gives people the more revelations or helpful starting points? Yeah, it's, the, you know, it's like I've been on the job eight months and I'm just not having any impact, so I'm leaving. <laughs> It's like, well, it takes longer than that, you know. Um, I think, I think, it, and uh, it's an issue because I think we've, we're raising a generation that's that's hooked on novelty. But mastery is where you find satisfaction, and so I, I'm not sure that there's a specific tool here. But we talk a lot about the, you know, how do you find meaning and purpose. Um, you know, if again, you know, people say, "Oh, follow your passion." And well, the problem is the statistics are eight out of ten people don't have one, so that's a bad question. Uh, and and passion happens after you've been mastering something for a while, and you realize this is really you know my thing. And so I think the 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 thing we have to be teaching more of in, in D schools and B schools and everywhere else is that it's not about novelty. It's about mastery. And that it, it takes some, you know, I talk about Angela Duckworth's work on growth mindset, uh, I mean, uh, 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 grit, and then um, growth mindset uh, from uh, Carol Dweck. Thank you. Um, so growth mindset and grit are, are like being open to learning and then, you know, doing the hard work it takes to get good at something. But that's where... You know, competence and mastery comes from, and so I think we have to reframe around uh, novelty. Because every, you know, if I don't like my app, I just get another app. You know, uh, our classes are ten weeks long. If I'm bored, I get a new class every ten weeks. Um, but that's not the way work works. In fact, I've had students say, "Well, you know, I got really good at this," and then you know what they asked? They said, "Could I do it again?" And so I did it one more time, and then they wanted me to do it again. Like, <laughs> what do I do? I said, well, you do it like a whole bunch of times until you get really good at it, and then you can teach it to others, right? Which is, quote, managing. Thank you. Hi, I know you talked about this briefly, but um, what do you think about the difference? Millennials have the mindset of work having meaning and impacting their life versus baby boomers had work to work, work to provide for a family. Yeah, and then the Gen Zs are even different. Um, we were just talking about this. There's, uh, 
Um, I call the Gen Z's depression babies because they were 10 or 12 when the world economy fell apart and their parents were you know, in another room talking about not having any money. Um, it's a pretty modern idea, not just with millennials, that um, work is going to be about meaning and purpose. Um, I don't know how many of you are you know, kids of immigrants, but my grandfather came from, got his family out of Germany in 1933 because he didn't think this Hitler thing was going to go so well. And uh, came to America and took any job he could take just to you know, put a roof over, the, over their head and, you know, and, and, and survive. Um, that wasn't, you know, but that wasn't that he didn't have meaning and purpose in his life. He and my grandmother belonged to the local church. There was a big German community in, in the Bay Area in those days. And they had many ways of finding meaning and purpose. So the notion that you're going to get everything from your job, money, meaning, purpose, you know, impact, is pretty... It's great if, if you can engineer it. And you can. You can engineer and design it to some extent. But, but I would be careful about over-investing too much in the notion that the, that, that the job will be everything because the job's going to change a lot and you're going to change. And, and you may find that there's some things you want to do for impact or, or purpose that you don't want to do for money. Right? I mean, if, if there's an, art, an inner artist in you, do you really want to work on the market's terms or do you want to do your art? If you, if, you, if you see a problem in your community, homelessness, you know, uh, kids not, not having you know, um, health and, and uh, exercise or whatever, and you want to attack that problem, do it, do it for the pure impact. You're not going to make any money at it. That doesn't mean it's not important. That's why I said you've got to know what you're measuring for. Measure, you know, measure the job for money, measure impact. You may have impact on the job. I mean, I took a 50% pay cut. I have way more impact now than I've ever had, probably anything else I've ever done. I mean, I, I, you know, my thing is I could have designed a couple more computers at Apple, but big deal, right? Comparing to, compared to educating you know, the next generation of designers. So um, what you do for your vocation and what you do for your avocation might be the same thing, but they don't have to be. And you might actually want to separate them for a very good reason, that if you do things on the market's terms, you may have to give up some expression and some impact. These are our last two audience questions. Okay. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for everything that you've been discussing. I'm in a unique situation of I lost a parent, and then very soon after, my company went through layoffs. Yeah. And so I'm currently looking for a new job, and I'm sorry. <laughs> and so I'm in a position of not having employment and also still grieving yeah. my mom. So do you have any advice on how to... And I'm seeing a therapist. <laughs> um, but do you have any advice on how to like kind of reenter the workforce and make my work redo my work life in a way that actually accommodates for my yeah. grieving. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're seeing a therapist. I, I, have, I don't know how to handle, you know, the situation you're in and I'm sorry for the grief that you're, you're feeling. That's, that's a tough spot. And, and it's, and it's tougher. It's even tougher if you're looking for a job and you don't feel like I can bring my, you know, 
I'm, I'm sure if you weren't in this situation, you have the marvelously fascinating personality and you can be excited and, and you know, and all those things in an interview. I think um, I, this is a case where I would really try to rely on my network, friends and, and anybody else who could help introduce me to people who might be able to find uh, you know, an op- opportunities for me. So I think, I, th- I think the only thing I could suggest is be kind to yourself. It's going to take some time. You know, the process I'm talking about of you know, asking for the story and having 10 coffees and stuff, it's going to take two or three months. And there may be times when you just don't feel like doing it because there's other stuff going on in your life. So just be kind to yourself and try to do the best you can. But don't waste your time with the Internet stuff. It won't work, and you'll feel you'll, it just will bum you out. Um, rely on your friends and networks of friends who can introduce you to other people, particularly people who might be in a position you know, to recognize your talent and, and find you an opportunity. Thank you. Okay. Hi. I think you said that you had about 1,500 students that were out there in the wild. Yeah. Um, of those, you don't have to name names, but what work is being done that's making you most proud and most inspired on <laughs> bad days, the ones that are like the good news when you think about them? Um, the, well, there, there's all sorts. So um, one of my students just ran for Congress. <laughs> Agatha Bacalar. Anybody vote for Ag- 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 Angela? Um, she um, she ran against Pelosi, uh, which is crazy. <laughs> but she had a strategy because if if you come in second, it forces a debate, and she wanted a, a millennial to debate um, uh, Nancy. It didn't work, unfortunately. She didn't quite get there. I voted for her. Um, I don't. You know, I th- th- this one. I'm a little. I'm a little. You know, I'm ba- up in. I'm not sure how to evaluate sometimes. Um, one of my students, one of my advisors came in my office about five, six years ago and said, hey, uh, uh, everybody's trying to make pictures on the internet permanent. What if we made them disappear? And I said, Evan, that's a stupid idea. Why would we want our pictures to disappear? <laughs> and that's Evan Spiegel and that's Snapchat. Um, it's working out well for Evan. He's got a jet. He married a supermodel. <laughs> He's co-parenting, uh, what's his name, son. Yeah, um, anyway, <laughs> I don't know if that, I'm not, I, that, wasn't, that wasn't one of my list of five hard problems to solve, <laughs> but um, he's doing well. Um, uh, if, you know, if you'd asked me, would, would my students be working in financial service, I'd say, what would they do in a bank? But... Um, um, uh, Capital One just redesigned the whole banking experience, and it now looks like it's a cross between a makerspace and a Starbucks, and it doesn't even feel like a bank. And that was uh, Jennifer Lopez, one of my students. Not the singer, but another. <laughs> I have a Jennifer Lopez, and I have a Danica Patrick. Danica is actually at Waymo reinventing you know, transportation, which I think is amazing. Um, so there's, there's, they're, they're all over the place doing stuff. And particularly... Um, we have a class at Stanford called Design for Extreme Affordability, and the students work on a problem and then go someplace like Kenya or, or rural India and, and try to really solve a real problem on the ground. And there's a bunch of, of students who've been working in that space, which I think is just amazing and noble and fantastic. 
started a company called Embrace, um, which has infant uh, sort of incubators, and a company called Delight, which is doing um, solar electrification, you know, in uh, rural India. So those are some of the cool things. And Bill, for our final question, it's an informed tradition to ask all of our speakers <laughs> the following. What's your 60-second idea to change the world? Yeah, they suddenly they asked me that. Um, <laughs> and, the, and the burrito tape was a great answer. Um, uh, you know, we spend 40 or 50 hours a week at work. It's 80 to 90,000 to 100,000 hours of our lifetime at work. We, and we're all equally creative. I can go through the whole neuroscience of creativity, but there's nothing special in my brain or anybody else's brain that makes me more creative than you. So what my 60-second you know, thing is like, we need to redesign the workplace to be a humane and, and, and creative place. We need to be in a position where people can, who are going to spend you know, 100,000 hours of their lives don't, you know, don't get up on Monday morning and go, oh, shit, I got to go to work, and don't come home Friday and need you know, three martinis to get over <laughs> the, the, the experience. Um, so if we could just all learn to think like a designer and design these things, I don't see why we can't all have um, at least a tolerable <laughs> job, if not something where we feel like um, you know, kind of the, best of, uh, the best of us is being used in a way that we think is useful. And if it's not going to be on the job, then have it be, you know, look, an AYSO coach teaching those girls to, about teamwork and how to, how to kick the ball to the net, that's awesome. That's impact. You know, coach a little league team. Do AYSO. Get out in the community and do something that you think needs to be done because that's designing a job that's really important. It's not about money. It's never about money. You, money is important, but, it's, but that's not... That shouldn't be the only reason you work, right? And it shouldn't be the only thing you measure. Great. Well, Bill, thank you very much for joining us tonight here at Inforum. You're welcome. If, if you can, please join Bill in the lounge immediately following for a book signing of Designing Your Work Life, and I think we've got some copies of Designing Your Life as well. I'm Meg Duwadi, and have a good night. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you.